today. If you have a Bible this morning and you would read along with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew chapter 14. The book of Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to read a story that is probably one of the earliest ones that you remember learning about in, in Sunday school. It's certainly a favorite whenever I was a kid, and um, I've done many silly little activities with my kids in regards to this story. Um, but one of the reasons why certain stories are popular in the Bible is because they're not only memorable, but they're also have a very relatable and powerful um, theme or story to them or principle. And I hope that we'll try to bring out one of those this morning. Pray for me today that I would say what the Lord would have be said and that your heart would receive whatever message or truth that God wants you to receive today. Matthew chapter 14, we'll begin our reading in verse 22 of our scripture reading. It says this, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into his ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. So the fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's the middle of the night coming into the morning. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to seek, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And that will conclude our reading this morning. That's reading from verse 22 to verse 33, I believe. Um, Yeah, verse 22 to verse 33 of our scripture reading today. And the title of our message this morning is The Uncertainty of Following Jesus. The Uncertainty of Following Jesus. Um, I hope I can express this well. It it dawned on me while we were singing today. But I want to try to, uh, this, this description this morning. Let's say that you were approached... We'll just say by God, because it's easier to say it that way. And you were 18 or 19 years old, perhaps a little older, perhaps a little younger. Whenever you gained your autonomy and your freedom from home, and God appeared to you in some fashion, and he said, 
I'll give you two paths that you can walk down. One will involve stability. One will involve um, the approval of those within your immediate family and household. One will involve, and, and I want to say this in a way that I'm saying nothing necessarily wrong. I'm not saying you're, you're going to do anything wrong to attain comfort or riches in an explicitly sinful manner. But that your life is, is steady, predictable. Now for me, that's a very appealing thing. Um, I can tell you um, everything about my month of October. I've got a teacher preach 15 times this month. I've got nine meeting, meetings. I can tell you what time I'll get up if you say October 21st. I can tell you what time I'm going to wake up that morning. Right? Uh, my life has to be that way in some sense. And I like the predictable and the steady, both in a schedule, but also just in my lifestyle decisions and choices. I like those things. And God appears to you and says, this can be your life. Steady, predictable. Or God says there's another path. And it will be highly unpredictable. It may or may not be approved by those people directly around you. And you can surmise the rest of what that life would be like. But in this second life, you're going to have some experiences. And they're going to be pretty incredible. You're going to walk on water at some point in your life. You have no idea when. You have no idea the events that are going to precede Precede, and then the events subsequent to that, you don't know, but you will walk on the water. You're going to watch hundreds of people get healed of physical sickness. You'll watch people who couldn't walk. People in your own family are going to be miraculously healed right before your eyes. You are going to be used as an example before the world. Your flaws, terrible flaws, and your triumphs. And details are not going to be spared. But the example of your life the bad as much as the good are going to help millions of people. But, you know, that comes along with the territory. There's going to be mockery. There's going to be questioning of your motives and who you were. There's going to be misunderstanding. People are going to ascribe wrong motives to you, and they're going to die that way. They're never going to be corrected. You're going to be famous for betrayal. To be known for that. But one day you're going to speak before thousands of people of 15 different languages 
and every person will understand your one language in their own language. You're going to have people who cried out to Jesus to be crucified also cry out to you, what, what must we do to be saved? You're going to heal people. You're going to be rebuked. And it's going to be documented in the book of the Bible by another brother because of your error. Eventually, you're going to die on a cross. You don't know when anything of these are going to happen. There may not be silver lining to some of it. You know, one of the things that I've learned about myself recently is that I'm willing to endure hardness as long as I can see the silver lining. Now, they say that's what makes a successful person. It's what they say is that you can delay gratification and you can put it out there and wait and delay and delay and delay. And the longer you can delay, usually the greater the reward. But what about something that is not natural per se? What about something that you don't know for sure if there will be a payback, a reward, a silver lining? Or you can live this first life. You will not, exempt, you will not experience any of those things. But you'll be saved. You'll be a member of the Lord's church. You'll, for lack of a better term, be a normal Christian. The path is before you. What do you choose? Now, I think it could be very easy to give a flippant answer to that. Because you know what I'm alluding to this morning. You know that on one hand is the life of Peter, and on the other hand is the life of an ordinary Christian. And yet, as I consider this story... And I consider my own Christian experience in light of this story, I'm reminded at how difficult, or rather how uncertain, the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ really is. Implicit in a walk of faith is fear. I'll say that again. Implicit in a life of faith is fear. You're in the storm. And you don't know that Jesus is coming. Because that's where they were. For a time, they were fighting the wind. I perhaps have a greater appreciation for that after what I just experienced. Watching the hurricane on the ocean, having been in the troubled waters a little bit and seen the power and force, and they're fighting. Now, so many things about this story are so fascinating. Number one, what we read leading up to this story earlier in the chapter is that John the Baptist, the follower of Jesus, had been beheaded. And his death had made its way to Jesus. The disciples took his body and buried him. And then it says, they went and they told Jesus. And then what Jesus did, perhaps, 
I infer from this out of sorrow, he retreats to a mountain to get away. To mourn. That's what I think. The people follow him. So his mourning is even violated by people. He can't just escape and have his time. The people gather. And you know the story. As they gather, he begins to preach to them as a patient as he was. He doesn't insist on himself because his life is not his own. His life is to be spent for the welfare of others and to follow out the will of God. And that in and of itself is a remarkable thing about the life of Jesus. I find myself desirous to escape often from the demands and the grabbing. And no doubt you do too, that people grab at you and they want your time and they want your attention and they violate your freedom and your time that is set aside to be alone. And that's a quick way to get me cranky. Likely you too. You plan, you, you have this time, you know that it's limited. Jesus in the same fashion has escaped to the mountain and people won't leave him alone. But not just a few people, 5,000 people won't leave him alone. And so Jesus, because of the goodness of his character, he yields his freedom for the welfare of others and he serves them. And then he miraculously feeds 5,000 of them with just a few fragments of food. Then we find this necessary detail in this story. Jesus commands the disciples to go to the sea. I suspect based upon the way that this is unfolding, that Jesus knew what was going to happen with the sea. Jesus sent the disciples to a body of water that was going to be met with a terrible storm. Now that runs so counter to the notion that can be projected about God that if you just stay close to God, he's going to bless you. And when I hear people allude to that, I think you don't know God very well. Because a life walking, consider Jesus' life alone. It ended with a cross and death and pain and suffering. Now, we have something to look forward to that will be free of all of those things. But let us not be under the illusion that following Jesus and being close to him is going to yield blessings and comfort. It doesn't. It it yields uncertainty. And because of the fragility of our nature, implicit is fear. I am afraid to follow Jesus. I am very afraid to follow Jesus. And the closer I get to him, the more I'm afraid. Because I see those that are closest to him, he requires more of them. And that more is to walk by faith. Man, that's hard. Programmed in our culture is the fairy tale story where things are going to get good, but what is predestined to happen is the positive. Every Disney movie, let me save you the suspense, ends with a resolution that satisfies you. 
that leaves you happy. And when the final words, the end, scrolls across the screen, there's a degree of satisfaction because whatever antagonists, whatever main characters, you're you're to some degree satisfied with what has happened. That's not always the case with following Jesus. He sends his disciples, those closest to him, to a storm, knowing that it's coming, I believe. And then Jesus does something that tells us a lot about himself. He's alone, and he prays. I don't know why, since since I first started preaching, those words, when I read them in the scriptures, just have so much meaning to me, and I don't really know why. But there is just something so... I feel it when I read the words of Jesus that it says he was alone and he prayed. And there's this deep part of me that desires to be like that. Purposely escape, not to satisfy my own desires, but to commune with God. And Jesus does. In one sense, if, everybody, if anybody did not ever need to do that, it was him. In one sense. But he does it. And if anybody does do it, it needs to, it's us. And how often that escapes us. Jesus sends his apostles to the storm. And that kind of gets at the point that I want to make this morning. He sent them to a place of uncertainty. Now... Typically what people do when they go to a place of uncertainty is they fight and they claw back to certainty. But what if in your life, that's where he wants you? What if in regards to whatever burdens weigh upon you, For some of you, it might be your work. For some of you, it may simply be the troublesome mind that you carry. People struggle with anxiety, depression, pain from broken relationships of the past. And although the pieces of their life from outside observation are steady, what is unsteady is up here. That's the unsteady part. And they have a hard time functioning because of the unsteadiness. But let's consider for a moment that Jesus sent you there. He sent you to the unsteady. What do we do? Well, I believe we do what they did. I love this too. I love that this occurs or Jesus picks up the narrative of this part between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I think that's an important part of the story. Why? Well, what are most of us doing between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m.? We're resting. Most of the world between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. are resting. Comfortable, calm, re-energizing. These men were sent to the sea by Jesus to fight a storm that was going to exhaust them and require that they forfeit 
the regular routine that provides them strength. They had to forfeit that and continue to fight. And very often when we follow Jesus, he compels us to go further than what our strength enables us to do. Here Jesus, these men, the Bible says the wind was against them. It was contrary to them. I imagine they're trying to keep things up. They're trying to keep things directed. Now, we find in the gospel, I believe it was of John, because this is recorded, I think, in John and in Mark. One of those accounts, it tells us um, there's a detail that I'm, I'm wanting to recall, and I don't at the moment. Here, Jesus, he comes and he begins to walk upon the water towards them. They don't recognize him. You know, it's very fitting because Jesus on the land looks different than Jesus in the troubled storm, doesn't he? Doesn't he look different? Think about it like this. When we're in the midst of of God's services and he's visiting us and life is going good and his blessings are abundant and people are getting saved and the church is unified... Jesus is the same, but he seems to have a halo. He seems to glow. And it seems to compel us to bow down. But here, the circumstances are very different. Because he lacks the halo, he lacks the glow, you lack the stability, you lack the confidence, you lack the the faith. You're troubled and you look upon Christ and it doesn't look like who he is. It is him, but it's not him from what you're perceiving. And in times of great sorrow, in times when the mind is distressed, very often the voice of God and the presence of God appear different to our sinful minds. It is still him. It is still his voice. His word has not changed. It is immutable and you can pick up the word of God to draw strength and you can look to men and women who have written devotions and you can listen to the preacher or the teacher give you exhortations and edify you and yet the words and and the truths and your perspective of who Jesus is seems different though he is the same. They think a spirit, a ghost. I'll just put it that way. I think it's a ghost for simplicity's sake. And they cry out with fear. I cannot tell you that how much I can relate to that right there. It just feels so relatable to the average person that when hardship and sorrow comes upon us, God's presence feels foreign. Here's what I love about the 27th verse. But straightway, word means immediately. But immediately, Jesus spake unto them, be of good cheer. In our language today, he would say this, take courage. Why? Now, 
This has always stuck out to me. Jesus does not calm the storm before he says it. That's an important point. Storm is still raging. Jesus immediately speaks to them. Take courage. So the next question, if you're in the middle of a storm, you've been fighting for your life, things continue to remain unstable, you're not sure who this is that is talking to you, you think it's some spirit or goat, you don't know what it is, if in today's world very often what I attribute to is just the imaginations of my own mind. That's just me. I'm just, I'm just conceiving something that isn't really there to make myself feel better, to endure the hardship that is before me. So he says, take courage. Why? Why should I take courage? Nothing about my circumstances changed. I still have the same feelings that I did. I still have the same rationale that I did moments ago. I'm still within this terrible circumstance where things in life are uncertain. Why should I take courage? And Jesus' next phrase gives gives us the answer concisely. It is I. Take courage. It's me, Jesus. And he says, be not afraid. This morning, as we consider the experience that Peter had, the spiritual man within me is very envious of what he had. And the carnal man recoils deeply at this experience in his life. And yet in making proper application to our own, I want you to consider a few questions or or ask yourself a few questions. When was the last time that your life was made uncertain because of the call of Christ? When was the last time that your life was made uncertain because of the call of Christ? I could give you a plethora of examples. I'm not going to do that this morning. The only thing that I will say is, when we follow Jesus, it inevitably leaves us, leads us to uncertainty and fear. That is not the message of Christianity today. And I think it has not been the message of many, many things that we have unintentionally portrayed to the world. But that's what it is. It's fearsome. It's fearful, rather, to walk by faith. Because what it does is it requires you to address things in ways that you don't want to address, both in yourself and other people. Take, for example, those people that we have heard talked about many times here in our services that are absent from us for a variety of reasons and are in spiritually desperate situations. At times, God calls us to address those, doesn't he? I have a family member coming to the waning years of his life. I am afraid. I'm afraid to talk to him. How long have I had that fear? A little over 12 years. 12 years I've had that fear. I've deceived myself into thinking very often, I'll wait for a better day. God will someday open this this big opportunity. And then, 
I'll seize. Is it any surprise that that day has never come and that I'm okay with that? Part of me is okay with that. The carnal man. Because here's what I recognize. What may very well happen, I don't know. And that's why I don't do it. Will I be cursed at? Possibly. Will my family be punished in a relational way as a result of it? Probably. Possibly. Will it be received? I don't know. Doubtful? Will I be interrupted in the midst of trying to explain something, never get my point out, and be misunderstood? I don't know. Probably. I'm afraid to go there. That little story is not meant to be focused upon. It's meant to be a composite of many other things in my life and in your life where we are afraid to go there. There are other examples I could give you, not about, not about um, how it relates to others and the impact on others, but things that God has called me and my heart to do between me and him that I'm afraid to do. Character qualities that must be addressed. Character flaws, we'll put it that way, that must be addressed. Lifestyle choices which must be considered. And I'm afraid to go there. Habits. Things that prevent me. And what I know, I know these two things occur because as we started at the beginning of our message, it's not things which are of what we would consider excessive sinfulness from what the world's perception. But it is choosing this path of certainty and conformity versus the uncertainty of just walking with Jesus. Most Christian people do not discern a difference in those two things. But there is a big difference. Did you hear what I said? Please hear what I just said. Most Christian people do not discern a difference in those two things. Because in the one, it has all of the glow of a good Christian life. But it is absent of the most pivotal quality of the Christian life, and that is faith. It is absent of that. And as our culture and our economy has eliminated almost all risk whatsoever in our private lives. We can have insurance of every form on everything to eliminate, to pay somebody else to take the risk. And we can have cameras and we can have schedules and we can have deadlines. And in almost every form of our culture, we have made things predictable. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not been helpful to man. But that same skeleton cannot be inserted into the Christian life because in doing that, we forfeit the richness of what makes up a Christian life. 
You never find yourself on a storm, but you also never see Jesus walking on the water. You never deny Christ. But you're also not granted the power to stand on the day of Pentecost preaching to thousands. You never feel the pain of rejection of your fellow countrymen. But you never see your fellow countrymen saved. You never put your foot in your mouth. Isn't that what Peter is known for? He sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. It is almost admired today to be a coward. It's almost an admirable thing to be cowardice and to not go against the grain or speak against the the common or live in opposition to what is expected. I think there's a lot of reasons for that I won't get into. But oh, what is forfeited when we don't? Peter puts... Jesus to the test, and it's such a fascinating testimony, and it's so far, I cannot, in any way, as I've looked at this, and we talked about this on Wednesday night, probably six months ago, I cannot in any way identify with Peter here. His response is not me at all. I can't even conceive of ever saying this to Jesus in this situation. Jesus wants to prove, rather, Peter wants to prove that this is, in fact, Jesus. So rather than saying, Come on board and let me touch you. Let me look at you closer. Doesn't say that. He says, if it's you, let me walk to you. Doesn't say, if it's you, calm the storm. Save our lives. That would have been my plea, I think. I don't know that, but that's what I would have said. If it's really you and I've seen you heal people, stop all this. And it would have done two things. Number one, it would have proven to me that he was God. But you know what it also would have done? You know what the secondary sly purpose that I would have said that for? To find stability again. Doesn't do that. He just says, it's you. Bid me come to you. And Jesus in one word. I love... I know this, this may not seem like a lot to other people, but I, I love when Jesus answers people like this. One word. Okay, come. And he does. And he does. And here, Peter steps out in faith. You know, notice the uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty here. Now, here's what struck me this time that had never struck me before. Peter's proposition was a life or death proposition. Went out to Oregon a number of years ago, and we went into this, where the church is at there in Coos Bay, a Hauser Missionary Baptist Church. There's a, a gentleman there who's a shrimp fisherman. You've probably seen, you know, um, Most Dangerous Catch. There's TV shows that have to do with that, and, and they're pretty dramatic. And so I was asking him, you know, is that real or is it? And he said, no, it's very real. That's exactly how it is. And he began to describe the life of a fisherman. And, and so, essentially... What is said there in this little town, they have this statue. And the statue is the picture. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's somehow depicting a fisherman. And um, on the statue beneath it is a plaque. And it goes back, I don't know, to the 70s or 80s, if I remember correctly. And underneath every year, there's names. 
Now, this is a really small town, probably the size of Scottsville. Really small town. And under every year are anywhere from one to ten names. And they're fishermen who died that year from that town fishing. And it's, it's, it's really, it grabs your attention. You realize how dangerous what they do is. And this man at the church told us, again, I don't want to, I want to misrelate the details. I think I'm telling this correctly. That when somebody falls overboard on one of their ships in a storm, if you don't get them within 15 seconds, they're dead. That's how uncontrollable both the ship is, and that's what the water does to the person. Now, again, having just come out of a hurricane and being on the beach and watching it, it made a lot more sense. I mean, the power of that water is just amazing. Here, here Peter says to Jesus, if it's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus says, come. Now, if the storm was what anything like a normal storm and uncertainty of the ocean and the sea is, if he steps out there and it's not Jesus, what's going to happen to him? I don't know. I seem to think that he probably wouldn't have made it. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the point of it, though. And that's what I've never seen before. That's the point. Of the whole thing. When you follow Jesus, there is risk and it's real. And there is no way to overcome the reality of that risk. It's still water. It's still a storm. It's still uncertain. And you still, the things that you want may not come to fruition if it's really not him. And that's what makes his actions that much more notable. You'll notice also, 12 apostles on board. How many got out of the boat? One. One out of 12 followed him. So let's ask this personal question. Are you that one? Are you the one? You know what happens? He begins to look at the storm. He walks for a few moments. His eyes are on Jesus. Things are good. He begins to look at the storm. And it causes him to fear. I'm not going to get into all that. You've heard that illustration explained many times. I certainly am not. I don't harshly criticize him for that at all. At all, I don't harshly criticize him for that. Because in the little puny storms that happen in my life, I never walk on the water, hardly. Let alone when I do, you know, it can come a ripple, not even a wave. And I'm afraid that it's going to throw my equilibrium off and I'm going to fall. He begins to sink. And Jesus, again, his, his, his response here is just so rich, so full. He's one of 12 that walks out there. He's the only one of 12. He's risking his life. And with, tucked within the instruction is a gentle rebuke. Gentle rebuke. Oh, thou of little faith. Now that, that amazes me because I think little faith? Little faith? That's a lot of faith. 
But imagine it from Jesus' standpoint. He's God. He's God. His power is boundless. The uncertainty is on our part alone. In truth, there's absolute certainty. That's the reality of things. Everything is sure. Jesus knows what he can do. This presses me in my faith. It challenges my faith. Because the same thing that I interpret as great faith, Jesus defines as little faith. And if this is little faith, then what is the faith that I have? What are the fears that I have? He says, oh, thou little faith, why did you doubt? In my mind, you know, 15 years or 14 years ago, I think, let's see. Yeah, 15 years ago. Um, so I, was, I was at this uh, little thing, and I, this little kid, you all know him now as Parker Ferris. He told this story, and, and at the very end of the, the video, he said, Wherefore didst thou doubt me? And he said it with a very, like a two-year-old would say it, one-and-a-half-year-old would say it, whatever the age was. For whatever reason, uh, you'll maybe think this is humorous, but at times when I begin to doubt the Lord, I can hear that little kid's voice in my head. And it's, it's really befitting for me you know, that, a little, that it would come out of the mouth of a babe. Why do you doubt the Lord? And then Jesus calms the storm. They went into the ship and they worshiped him. This morning, um, suppose been a theme that has been on my mind for a number of weeks now. And I've not been able to escape it. Um... I want to encourage you. I think that's what it is. An encouragement. Challenge seems too silly or shallow. I want to encourage you to go to the storm. Let me rephrase that. I want to encourage you To not fear the storm. Whatever it is. Now some of you may think this is humorous and that's okay. I know I'm not very old. I'm 34 years old, almost 35 years old. The older I get, the more little experience that I do get. the heavier these things sit upon me. Like this little cute story in Sunday school just doesn't feel cute anymore. It feels laced with deep, applicable truths to the deepest part of my being and life experience. And there are times when I'll read a story like this in my own private devotion And I'll talk out loud. And I'll just say things like, Lord, I don't know how to do that. 
And then I'll tell him why. I'll tell him, here's the storm. And here's the uncertainty. Or I'll tell him, here's the ship I'm clinging on to. Here's what I'm scared of. I don't want to let go. I have a desire that you would walk with the Lord and that you would choose of your own volition the second life and not the first. I know that when people follow the Lord, Satan challenges those people. I don't invite you to a road that leads anywhere else else but Golgotha. I don't. But... I also know that three days after Jesus ascended Golgotha, he rose again. And today, he has a name that is exalted above every name. I put before you this morning, I really hope, and so I'll tell you this, I intend, if God would help me and give me the courage to continue to challenge your faith, both in public and in private, because I think that that's what God has called me to do. And I hope that you would trust and know I mean it with all love, as much as I can, in sincerity. And I hope that as God provokes you, you would yield to this uncertainty of life, that he would reinforce in you that it's well worth it.